Well, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 86. Psalm 86. People have been asking me, when are you getting back to Revelation? We'll get back to it. We'll get back to it. Not afraid of it, um, but I just thought it would be good to take a little bit of a breather and uh, enjoy some psalms. I'm uh, delighting in the psalms, and uh, so I hope uh, you find them to be a comfort as well, an encouragement. Uh, it has been said that the, the book of Psalms was uh, Israel's hymn book. Uh, we can express things. Um, it can help us in our prayers, and maybe that's what what I'm getting at here. It can help us in our prayers. It can help us express worship to God. And so that's why I think they're so, so very valuable for the church today. And we should, they should not be neglected at all. Well, Psalm 86. I encourage you to turn in your own Bibles there if you're using the, the church Bible. That, I believe, is on 494. Lots of Bibles in the room. Help yourself to one. Psalm 86. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Begins a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me, for you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for inspiring King David, the psalmist, to pen this. And we know that these words are living and active, and they are for our souls. They are food for us. And so, Lord, would you teach us Fill us, give us, a, give us what we need that we do not even know what that is because your food is that spiritual nourishment for us. And in all of these things, Father, we do want to be reminded um, why you have given this entire book of your word, ultimately to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're seeking to, to find him in this as well. And we pray that you would show us Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. I'm, uh, I'm really enjoying being a grandfather, very much so. And I'm very blessed to have them nearby. Uh, I love watching them develop and grow. It's, uh, it's so many things that, that I remember, you know, or, well, I guess I'd forgotten as a, as a parent, you know, when my kids were little. I'm being reminded again over and over and, and you know what, this is true with little children, and they're very young at this point. As soon as they can, they instinctively ask for the things that they want. Now, Reese has very few words, but, but she can point and make a sound and, and ask for something like bread or whatever. Uh, Avery and Nora have very developed vocabularies. So they can ask for food. Often they do for treats, toys. Go to the pool, go to the park, things that they want, momentary enjoyments. And of course, it's interesting that they ask for the things that they think they need, the things that they want. Now, we know 
his parents, grandparents, we know that they don't ask for the things that they most need. They don't ask for nutrition. They don't ask for protection, for comfort and correction. We get that. But as they mature, as children mature, so will their understanding of need and their desires will begin to reflect what their true needs are. And we know this with our children as they grow. At some point, they will concern themselves with, with things like friendship and marriage and career and education, where to live, things like that. Well, as children of our Father in heaven, we come to him in prayer. And as we mature in faith, we certainly may ask for those temporal comforts. We may ask for those things, those desires. And there's nothing wrong with that. But certainly as we grow, and I believe as exemplified in this psalm, we begin to pray and ask for more weighty things, more serious concerns. And so as we consider Psalm 86 today, there's no way I can unpack every last detail in this psalm. And I realize that there are so many things that we could touch on that I'll skip over. But I, I want to use the psalm today as really a, a template for how we pray. How we pray. Now David, the writer of the psalm, he shows us what that prayer looks like. He shows us what the prayer is of someone who is mature or maturing in the faith. Now the psalm includes, and I've pulled out, you could say that there are eight specific petitions. I, I've distilled it down to six. And these six petitions, I believe, should inform how we pray. So I want to look at those petitions this morning. Before I talk about the first one, um, Kathy sometimes says that I need to get my ears checked. Now, honestly, I don't think I actually have a physical problem that would require hearing aids. I'm pretty sure of that. The, the issue, and I'll have to admit, is that I'm not always attentive. That's probably the problem. I can hear my wife's voice, but if I don't attend to what she is saying, my auditory acuity doesn't actually matter, right? Now, I know someone generalized once that men cannot multitask. I don't know if that's sociologically established uh, or might be just an excuse. Uh, I'll, I'll go with sociologically established. Can't multitask, okay? <laughs> but by contrast, what is true about God is that he has no trouble at all attending to the prayers of his people. And that's David's first petition. He's counting on something. First petition, we see this in verses 1 and 6. Hear my prayer. And as we think about our own prayers, as we come to the Lord, we can, maybe we just assume it when we pray, but David says, hear my prayer. Verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord. And we see it again in verse 6, give ear, O Lord. Now, now why would the Lord listen? Why would the Lord listen? Now, the first thing that David says about himself is, I am poor and needy. Now, as we think about David, and if he's king at the time, how is he poor, and what possibly could he need? Now, I really don't think he is praying about physical sustenance. I do not think that's what it is. The specific petitions that, that follow really reveals what he believes he lacks. But I take it that the, the overarching posture of David, this attitude that he has, is, is one of being penitent. That's why I titled the message, prayers, uh, petitions, sorry, of the penitent. Penitent. What is penitence? It's a, it's a kind of a unique word, at least in the English translation that I use, the English Standard Version. It shows up only once. Uh, that Hebrew word behind it is often translated as tender. Tender, someone who's penitent has a tender heart. And just to give you an example of how it's used in Scripture and the reason why I chose it, it's, uh, it's the word to use, uh, the word used to describe, if you re recall the, the occasion of, of Judah's king, Josiah. He responded to the discovery of the law as the temple was being renovated. His response to that when it was read to him was, was to tear his clothing and to, to be grieved. His 
heart was penitent. It was soft towards God. He was, when he heard the word of the Lord, he was not stiff-necked as the, the Israelites were described when they were in the wilderness and kept going back to their sin. He was not stiff-necked. He was not hard-hearted. And it's that softness of heart that was proven out in Josiah's expression of humility. Now, they're not the same words, but, but someone who is repentant before the Lord that person really has to have a tender, penitent heart. And a tender heart is one that is humble before the Lord. And so we, as we think about why would the Lord listen, I'm saying it's because David was penitent. He wrote this in another psalm. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Well, wait a minute. He's counting on the Lord to listen. Now, now, of course, it's not that God would not hear. But what he's pointing out in, in, in Psalm 66 is that to approach the Lord, already having decided not to submit to his word that corrects us, that's futility. So to say, Lord, hear my prayer, but yet hold something in that is a, a direct opposition to his will and to his word and say, I'm not going to change that. That's a, a futile act. It's the same reason why Jesus, when he was teaching, he, he said to the people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He's pointing out the absurdity. You say I'm Lord, but you behave like you're the ruler. You come to me in prayer, and I tell you this is sin, and you say, well, I, we're not going to deal with that today. No, a, a penitent heart. A tender heart acknowledges God's word and the authority of it. It acknowledges God's power, God's wisdom, God's righteousness, and his compassion and rests on that, in fact. And, and understands at the very heart of it that what God is seeking for his children is what is best. A penitent heart recognizes that. Scripture says this, Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. If you fear the Lord, if you trust the Lord, if you come before him with a humble, penitent, tender heart, know that the Lord will hear your prayer. And so when you pray, Lord, hear my prayer, take it as a kind of a preparation to say, I'm ready for what you have to say to me, I'm willing to submit to your will and to your way. So, first petition, that God would hear. Long ago, someone said, and I'm sure you've heard this, that there are no atheists in foxholes. It's that idea that in the state of war, whatever your religious upbringing, when there's a hail of bullets over you and you just feel impending doom, whether people believe in God or not, they often call out to him, especially when faced with that imminent danger of life and limb. We get it. Now, if the godless, if the godless would throw up a prayer for protection, how much more, how much more the child of God? So here as we look at David's second petition, I, I think he must have a sense, well, it's possible he must have a sense that either his existence is threatened but maybe more likely, and I think this is actually it, that his existence, his very life, that's wholly dependent upon God. So he prays. This is the second petition. Preserve my life. Preserve my life. Again, I'm looking at, at this as a model for our prayers. Preserve my life. Now, he gives a reason. Preserve my life for I am godly. Now, I don't want you to take it in this sense that David is saying, look, I've, I've been pretty good, so I think you really owe me to preserve my life. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. It's not a self-righteous claim because that would contradict what it says in verse 1, I'm poor and needy, right? Rather, what he's doing in saying, for I am godly, he's, he's pointing back to God's covenant with his people. God had made a promise. Exodus 6, 7. David knew it. The Lord said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
For David to say, I am godly, he's saying, I remember your covenant that you made with your people. I am among those with whom you made this covenant. You set me apart unto yourself. You have a purpose. You have called me among your people. You have called me. I am part of this group. Therefore, preserve my life. And he says, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. He understands the covenant relationship that he has with God so that that he can ask for his life to be preserved. He's resting on that promise. And he's trusting the Lord to follow through with his promise. Now, David asking that his life would be preserved, I don't think he's merely asking that he be kept from dying. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I take it here that there's a a qualitative aspect to this petition. To preserve. To preserve something is, is really to keep it from being corrupted, right? Keep it from being empty. Keep it from being useless and and pointless to preserve something. And I think we all know this, that that life is not mere existence, right? Life is not mere existence. And in fact, in Luke chapter 12, 23, Jesus taught his disciples there not to be anxious about mere existence. That's my way of taking what he said. Because he said to them, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life is not mere existence. Yet, in, in John 14, 6, you'll be familiar with this, perhaps Jesus said, among other things, I am the life. So, so what does that mean if life is not mere existence and let Jesus is the life? Well, in the context of John chapter 14, 6, Jesus there was speaking about the promise, the promise of life beyond our mortal existence. That promise Uh, ultimately lived out in a place that he was going to prepare. But Jesus taught that eternal life is more than what comes after we physically die. It's this qualitative aspect of that future life that Jesus says, that's for you now. That's for you now. Jesus said this, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus prayed that for his disciples. He prayed that for us. And what he's saying is, life is knowing God. And to know God is to understand his purpose for you. Yes, there is a place for you beyond the grave, but while you have breath in you, there is a place for you in this world so that you reflect God's glory back to him. Now, it's not wrong if you feel your life threatened to turn to the Lord and pray for protection. We've all done it. Close call. We thank God for preserving us, right? Or when we feel some imminent danger, God, Protect me from the tornado that's coming through. Protect me from whatever. It's not wrong to pray for that. But when we pray, like David, preserve my life, there's a a qualitative aspect. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, pray that the Lord would preserve your life. Pray this way. Lord, make my life count for you. Preserve my life. Make it useful for you. Lord, Preserve my life. Protect me from sin and my own evil desires. In the Lord's Prayer, we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. That's something we should routinely pray. Lord, preserve my life. Keep me wandering away from you. Lord, preserve my life. Help me to steward everything that you've put into my hands to serve you and others. Remind me that I'm not an owner, but it's your stuff. Preserve my life. From, from being caught up in materialism and material things and hoarding stuff. Preserve my life. Lord, preserve my life. Help me to be an encouraging friend. Strengthen me to be a, a devoted husband or wife or a faithful church member. 
Preserve my life, Lord. Help me love my family sacrificially. Preserve my life, Lord. Help me raise my children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Preserve my life. Help me endure suffering without reviling the pain or you. Lord, preserve my life. Help me to truly love my enemies and pray for those that would persecute me. Got my pages mixed up. One second. Wow. There it is. Look at that. All right. Preserve my life. Help me be a faithful witness to your grace. Help me make the world a better place. When we're asking for the Lord to preserve us, we're asking for him to continue to do his work through us so, so that we're useful to him in the world. There's a myriad of ways that you could fill that in. Let me encourage you to pray with David that way. Now, let's consider the third petition. What David knew that is that God is good and he only ever does what is good. And that goodness, and I think we all understand this, is expressed in his grace, God's grace. So what is, what is grace? Grace is simply a gift. It's an unmerited, unearned <clears throat> favor. And this is David's third petition. He says, be gracious to me. And we see this in verse 13, sorry, verse 3 and verse 16. Now as we think about what, what David's requesting, be gracious to me, I want to remind you that, that grace is both common but also special. Grace is both common and special. Now, common grace, that's, that's the goodness of God just spread abroad. So, for example, God gives us creation to enjoy. enjoy. You, you step outside, you see the beautiful nature. God made all of that. We're all enjoying it, good or evil. It's beautiful. We love it. The rain comes, waters the crops. We, we eat and we're satisfied. That's God's common grace. Medical abilities. People, somebody, whether, whether they acknowledge God or not, they discover some gene or thing and they, they can apply it to this particular cancer. That's part of God's common grace. We all get to enjoy that. But God's grace is also special. It's, it's particular to some and then it passes over others. And, and David, I take it, David's petition for grace here in both 3 and 16, I, I think that he understands he's already been the recipient of God's promises. And so he's praying for a special, particular grace for, for something. And we see what, why. He expresses that he is needy. He's already said that in verse 1. For to you I cry all the day. So there's some grief, there's some lack that he feels. Verse 16, he asks in, 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 in the context of seeking that grace, give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Now, we often, when we think of the grace of God, we speak of God's grace uh, when we have received some good thing that we wanted. And as many of you know, back in October, I had my cardiac event. And I said at the time that God was very gracious to spare my life. God was gracious, and I, I believe that. But it's also true. It is also true that God would have been no less gracious if he took my life. So the key to understanding God's grace is not necessarily that it, it's the good answer that we want in the moment, but that ultimately God defines what is good. Now, let me give an example. You, you might think it would be gracious of God to, to provide you with that job that you really, really wanted. It pays more, it's, it's prestigious, it's a great opportunity. But, but what if, just what if, that, that additional compensation and that, that greater responsibility had some negative effect? Well, I think you could conclude, but you wouldn't know that it would not ultimately have been good. And so indeed, God would have been gracious to deny that. God is gracious all of the time. Now, 
We're not left in the dark as to what God's grace accomplishes, right? God has revealed these things. He's revealed to us what his, how his grace works in our lives, how his particular grace works. So as we think to apply this, when you're praying for God's grace, here's some ways. Here's some ways that God, God's particular grace is activated in our lives. Initially, God's special grace is what made you his child. If you're a child of God today, it's because God was gracious to you and it was particular and special and it was directed at you. It made you his child. Uh, Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So if you're saved, it is because the grace of God appeared to you. He did this, of course, by giving his son, right? The, the, the supreme expression of God's grace is articulated. John 3.16, often memorized, God so loved the world that he gave. There's grace, right? The gift. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's God's grace to make you his child, to save you. But God's grace goes, goes beyond just marking you for eternity. God's special grace sanctifies you, it makes you, it remakes you, it makes you holy. To be sanctified is to be set apart. It, it makes it so that you more and more increasingly reflect the very character of God. It transforms you. And that verse in, in Titus chapter 2, uh, 11 and 12, this is the second part of it. The grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It is the grace of God. Do not, do not misunderstand how your life changes. Do not look at the course of your life and say, you know, I applied all of this discipline, and, and now I'm more godly than I was. No, it was the grace of God that taught you that. Don't ever forget how you got where you are if you're a mature believer in Christ today. You did not accomplish it yourself. You responded, yes. You obeyed, yes. But what drove you? The grace of God. It is all his work. God's grace sanctifies you. God's grace, God's special grace, also accomplishes his purpose through you. I, I love uh, this psalm, Psalm 67. I, I preached on it at the beginning of the year. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Okay, there's the gift. God, would you please give us gifts and, and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That's the ironic blessing that you find in Numbers. And then he gives the reason that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. See, David's saying, I want your blessing so that I can fulfill your call in my life. I want your blessing so that everyone will know how good you are. I want your blessing on my life so that through me, somehow, some way, people would see your saving power and the nations would come and bow to you. He asks for grace so that he may accomplish God's purposes. Well, God's special grace what else does it do? It will sustain you through suffering. You know the story? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul there describes how he was given a thorn in the flesh, right? It's some kind of debilitating ailment. And, and it tells us there that he asked the Lord three times, pleading. It... it to ask once and not hear the answer he wants, ask again. And he's talking to the Lord, right? He asks three times. This is, this is a profound pleading. Somehow I take it, I take it that somehow the Apostle Paul felt that whatever this thorn in the flesh was, was somehow going to affect his ability to carry out the thing that God had called him to do. And yet, what did the Lord tell him? Now the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So the Apostle Paul concludes, well, 
What am I going to do about that? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He comes to the conclusion very quickly, but we, we don't get the angst of it in this verse. Not here. But how many times and, and how many months or days separated each of those asks, Lord, would you take this thorn from me? We don't know. But he understands God's grace. God's grace make, not only helps him endure suffering, God's particular grace not only helps him endure suffering, but to actually be useful to the Lord in it because his grace is sufficient. And that sufficiency, it's not just, well, it's good enough. No, sufficient means everything perfectly matched to the need. God's grace is perfectly aligned to whatever need you have, whatever your suffering, whatever your circumstance, whatever your lot in life, if you know you are weak, the scripture says the power of Christ will shine through because of God's grace. So when you pray, God, be gracious. Pray for that. So be bold. Ultimately, God's grace is about his glory and your eternal good. Well, the fourth petition I want to look at in our psalm here, David prays, gladden Gladden the heart, sorry, gladden the soul. Gladden the soul of your servant, verse four. Now here, David is, is praying to be happy, to be joyful. And it's a very interesting petition to me. Now think about your own prayers. And I, I, I got thinking about my own prayers. There are things that cause our hearts to be saddened, right? Maybe separation from loved ones relationships that have fallen apart, particularly if it's a marriage, that's huge heartbreak. Some, some kind of loss saddens you. Um, maybe uh, an ability that you've lost because of an injury or ailing health, a job. Now, I think we might be inclined to pray, God, change the situation. Would you please fix the thing that is broken? And I think the way in which we do this is we say, okay, I'm not happy. God, if you fix this, you fix the circumstance, I'll take care of the happy. Right? Well, that's all well and good, except why is David praying this? Why is he praying glad in the heart? What was the source of David's grief that brought this petition? Verse 14, he's there writing of a band of insolent and ruthless men who have risen up against him, but uh, that's not what David has in mind, not here anyway. I take it that he is grieved by his own sin. He is grieved by his own failures. For you, O Lord, and this is why I conclude this in verse 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And that news is the source for his joy. His heart is gladdened because God is a forgiving God. Now, let's not skip over the sin part because David was grieved by his own sin. Maybe you recall the story in 2 Samuel 11. There he was wandering around the roof of his palace, notices a woman, Bathsheba. Happens to be the wife of one of his bravest generals, Uriah. He takes Bathsheba. It's adultery. To cover the sin, because she's pregnant, he has her husband murdered. Now, there's a lot to the story and the time that goes by, but ultimately, we end up with Psalm 51, where that great psalm of repentance, where he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And before that, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. He understands before the Lord what a grievous evil he had committed. But then he says this in verse 12. After that expression of repentance before the Lord, restore to me, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore the joy of your salvation, which tells me that there's no joy in sin. Sin hurts other people, to be sure. David sinned against all Israel. He sinned against Uriah, lost his life, sinned against Bathsheba. But sin steals our joy too. 
It's like a cancer that works its way in you and ultimately destroys you. So let me ask you, are you grieved by your own sins? Now it's entirely possible that you've accommodated yourself to some of them. Maybe there are some that you've just said, well, it's just the way I am. Maybe it's that sharp tongue that you respond so quickly. Maybe it's that desire not to forgive, the grudge you hold. That's just the way I am. Maybe it's that little compartment of your mind that holds that lustful thought and just puts a wall around it and says, no, that's, that's for me. It's just the way I am. Now, we shouldn't be shocked at how our flesh craves what is unholy. We shouldn't be shocked about that. But we've got to keep fighting the battle against sin and confessing it and turning away from it. Why? Because, because we've sinned against Almighty God. But that's a detrimental pers personal effect, which is secondary. I mean, first of all, we've sinned against Almighty God and others. But don't think that continuing the sin is like somehow the path to joy. It's not. It steals your joy. You never increase your joy when you curse someone out. You never increase your joy when you belittle someone. You never increase your joy when you're unfaithful. You never increase your joy when you're selfish or greedy or lustful or full of pride. You never increase your joy in any way when you rebel against God. You do not. The temptation to do these things, to sin, it's just crouching at the door like the Lord told Cain. Is ready to pounce. And because of that, I encourage you this. I've shared this with, probably shared this with you before. One of the things I, I regularly pray, God, cause me, cause me, make it happen in me. Cause me to loathe my own sin like you loathe it. Make me hate it. Because it's not just the external obedience that God wants. Well, I, you know, Outside, but if, if inside all of that corruption is there, it's not like God is pleased. Well, at least he didn't do it. Well, no, he wants our hearts. And the only way I'm not gonna sin is if I actually hate the sin, right? You'll do what you love eventually, even if there's some social constraint. You eventually do what you love, but you won't want to do what you hate. And that takes a long time, and it takes a lifetime, but pray. Pray that you would hate your sin now, you may not be an adulterer or a murderer like David, but you likely have been in your heart. It's all of us. And we know this. If any of us was to stand before God based on our own goodness, right? If any of us would stand alone before God, say, test me, see who I do. Even if you're the best person on the planet, we'd be condemned along with murderers and adulterers and thieves and cheats. And we often sing this from Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, should, Lord, should keep a record of my sins, O Lord, who could stand? And here's where the joy comes in. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's forgiveness. And that's... Listen, we're all sinners. We... If God was to mark our sins, we, we could not stand. But the joy, the joy, the joy comes from confession and resting on what Christ has done for us. That's what we all have, all of us who are in Christ. Now, as David wrote this psalm, what he, what he didn't fully understand, I believe, is, is how God would ultimately accomplish this forgiveness. David Apart from, uh, along with every other Israelite, they brought their sacrifice to the temple and somehow that atoned for sin. But those sacrifices were made, pointed ultimately forward to a once-for-all sacrifice in Christ. And we know, brothers and sisters, today that we can have joy because of what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he that is God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, yes, be grieved by your sin. We should be. That leads us to repentance, confession. But find the flood of joy that will gladden your heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ you are accepted. You are a child of God. In Christ you 
are righteous. So pray, gladden the heart, and find your joy in the forgiveness that you have in Christ. Should be a feature of all of our prayers. Well, the fifth petition. David prays to the Lord. Verse 11, teach me your way. Teach me your way. Now, the way of God, that's not a mystery. We've got the Bibles in our hands, right? It is... The way of God is every word that comes from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. The, the way of God is his word which accomplishes what he purposes and succeeds in the thing for which he sent it, Isaiah 55.11. His way is found in the living and active word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The way of God is his breathed out word, the scriptures which are able to make you wise to salvation. That same word that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, correction, for training in righteousness so that you may be equipped for every good work. Now David knows, David knows even as he's, he's praying, teach me your way. He knows that it is the word. He knows that believing and submitting to it has the good result, that I may walk in your truth. The way of God is walking, living in the truth of the word, living in harmony with God, living righteously according to the word, representing ultimately him in the world, faithfully bearing his image because of the word. But to, 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 for this to be possible, David understands that his, his affections and his allegiances must not be divided. And he prays this, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite. One translation, I used to, I had memorized this in the NIV years ago. Give me an undivided heart. A united heart is, is a heart that has a singular focus, right? You could say it's a heart, a will, a, a motivation that is united with God's heart. It's a will that, that doesn't try to balance competing interests. Let me illustrate this. Young women, if you're looking for a husband and you, you, you want one, who only has eyes for you, right? That's what you want. Now, if he's keeping his options open, even if he says, I love you, dump him, okay? <laughs> dump him. He has a divided heart. Now, that's so obvious to us, right, in relationships. But if you truly believe God, you need an undivided heart. You need a united heart that fears his name, that says his word is the authority. His word gets my full submission, full allegiance, full obedience. In the New Testament, James, the, the writer of that, uh, the let, his letter, he, he, he writes of the one who does not truly have faith in God, who doesn't really trust. He says, that person who doesn't trust God must not suppose, and he's talking about prayer, that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So brothers and sisters, pray. Pray that God would teach you his way. And that has implications for our lives, right? Praying that God would teach you his way, you can't be passive in this. Praying that means you expect him to answer. And it all relates to the word of God. You, you can't pray, God, teach me your way and, and resist the word, right? So, so when you read the Bible, expect it to change you. When you open the Bible to read it, say, God, I know you're going to do something in me. You're going to feed me somehow. And even if you don't know how it works on you, trust that it will feed your soul. Your very life depends upon it. And when you come to worship and when you prepare to hear God's word in this place or in any other taught or preached, don't be passive. Don't fold your arms and say, show me what you got. Lean in, lean in, expect. God, somehow you're gonna speak through this flawed man. Somehow, someway, I'm gonna trust you as I, as I hear your word that you're gonna change me somehow. Lean in. Ask God to make things clear that aren't clear up front. And put away distractions. Decide that the word of God is the most important thing that you will ever hear. You've got to decide that. 
and decide in advance that God's word is going to transform you and return again and again and again to the gospel, that power of God for the salvation of everyone believes, that power for your past to justify you before God and take care of your sin problem, the power of God for your present salvation so that you may be sanctified and the power of God to bring you all the way home so that you will one day be glorified. That gospel, come back to it again and again and again because it will be God's power in your life. Ultimately, pray this way so that your heart is holy and solely for him because of the word. When you say, teach me your way. And because... Look at what David does here. Because of God's word, we can see this, this doxology comes from him, right? The psalmist responds with this gratitude in what he knows. Verse 12, that God's name is glorious. And that's what we discover, right? When we, when we take the word to heart, God's good. He is glorious. Verse 13, that, that God's covenant love is what's rescued him. And so we don't ever take any credit to ourselves for what we know about the Lord. So Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to me. And in verse 14, that even though there are enemies that would revile him, he knows, he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is merciful and gracious, eternally loving and faithful. So if you truly want the Lord to teach you his ways, when that truth grips you, when that truth grips your heart, you will not be able to contain your praise. Teach me your way. Finally, the sixth petition, David prays, show me a sign of your favor, a sign. What's a sign? A sign in this case, I guess it could be like a road sign, some, something indicating someone, something else. It's a, a distinguishing mark, really a remembrance. Uh, it could be an omen or some kind of warning that, that's also possible in the word. Even something miraculous, show me your sign. But he's asking here for a sign of God's favor, of God's goodness. And I, I take it that David wants it for himself. I, I need something from you. And he gets very specific, and it looks like what he's looking for is some kind of vindication. That those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I want those, the ones who revile me, the ones who are opposed to me, I want them to know that you're the one, God, who has helped me. You, that it's your strength, your comfort. I want those who hate me and put me to shame to know that you are my help and comfort. I want them to know you've rescued me. I want them to acknowledge it's right for me to trust you and, be, and I want them to be ashamed of their opposition. Now, how or when God may or may not have answered that prayer, we cannot know. And it seems to me, though, that he, what he has is the memory of the Lord's help in the past and, and the Lord's comfort, and he wants that again in this prayer. Now, how do we apply this? Today, there are those around us who hate God. They hate his word. Those who love his word are considered enemies. And sometimes, perhaps, you might even feel that persecution. We certainly feel the, the, the structures of society starting to, to close in on us a little bit. And we know that God will vindicate his name. We've, we've been in Revelation, so just turn to the end, and you see that, that ultimately the Son of God is acknowledged before all nations. Every knee bow, every tongue confesses, and all God's people along with him will experience that glorious victory. But between now and then, maybe we won't have that. Now, David's prayer he, here seeking, and I, I take it what he's seeking is assurance I want them to know, but that kind of confirms in my own heart that you still got me, that you're still taking care of me. And it's not wrong for him to ask for that assurance. And it's not wrong for us as children of God today to ask for him to give that assurance as well. But here's the good news. God has already given that assurance. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, to all who believe, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father and here's the assurance the spirit himself bears witness 
with our spirit that we're his children. How this works, I don't exactly know. But when you're longing for a reminder, for assurance, for some, some sign from God just to know that he still has you, I believe he sends his spirit if you're truly humble before the Lord to, to remind us you belong to the Lord. You're a, you're a child of God. The spirit of God, that's what it says, bears witness with our spirit and we're reminded again that we're his children. So pray it. Be reminded of the Holy Spirit who works in your life. So if your heart is soft towards God, pray. Hopefully this psalm will help you give some expression to that prayer. And we pray because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, talking about Christ, but one in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So as a result, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And because of Christ, God will listen. He hears your prayer. And because of Christ, he will preserve your life. He will give you purpose in him. And because of Christ, he will save you. He will sanctify you. He will sustain you. Because of Christ, he will gladden your soul with the reminder of your forgiveness in him, the knowledge of his, his everlasting mercy. Because of Christ, he will teach you his way so that you can live in this world in a growing in joyful obedience with God. And because of Christ, the Holy Spirit will confirm that you're a child of God. So, brothers and sisters, penitent petitioners, pray. And we'll do that now. Father, we thank you that you show us how to pray through your word. We thank you for all, all the good gifts that you give to us, countless things. God, we know that uh, we are sustained not by our willpower, but we are sustained by your spirit, by your word, by your truth. Lord, for those who are uh, in this room or listening, watching, who are not even sure where they stand with you, I pray that you would make them wise to salvation in Christ. And for all of us who, who already believe God, would you grow us and strengthen us and equip us for living in the world that is hostile to your name as we wait for that day of the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and when he comes in victory. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.